This podcast is hosted by Chris Finkston and Spencer Oliver. They are both experienced paramedics. They've done everything from 911 ground ambulance to volunteer fire department work and are both currently flight paramedics. This podcast reviews scenarios based on real calls run by real out-of-hospital clinicians. Details are changed to protect the privacy of those involved and to present educational opportunities to the listener. This podcast is EMS 2020. A little bit easier, not in the sense that they are not hard decisions to make, but that you feel a little more justified going into them. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that resonated with me uh, with Just Culture was I, I just appreciated having supervisors and managers uh, going like, yeah, we appreciate that most people don't come to work to fuck shit up. Exactly. You know, like, yeah. like everyone's everyone has that like, well, on my last day list of like terrible shit we'd like to do. You know, yeah. most of it in just blatantly ignoring dispatch. Yeah, blatantly ignoring <laughs> but, dispatch or 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 saying something to dispatch. Right. But like really, but like there's having having people up there telling us like, yeah, most errors come from people trying to do the right thing and it just like inadvertently hitting a bit of bad luck. Like, you know, trying to start an IV and hitting a bump at the same time. You know, uh those are those are pretty typical like errors that happen or not even really errors they're just like oh that's bad luck that happened um most of the errors just kind of come from people just taking shortcuts to try and save time and failing to recognize the risks that are inherent with that you know like not double checking medication vials or like calling out the dose you're about to give to your partner um you know like just really small things like that that usually are inconsequential um, you know, usually like, and that just made sense to me. And it really sold me into identifying those like patterns of thinking that can, you know, lead me astray. Um, yeah, that's part of the reason I like doing the podcast. So I feel exactly the same about that. Like uh, people don't come to work, uh, to fuck up. In fact, they don't, it's not, this is actually one of those jobs where people come to work and often take risk to do the right thing. I mean, they have a huge drive to come out and do the right thing. And what I really like about uh, a lot of the just culture stuff is it gives you an opportunity as, as a company, uh, to recognize when people actually go above and beyond, even when outcomes aren't the greatest. I think we get so focused on outcomes in this job, like, Hey, something bad happened to a patient. We got to start firing people. And that's what just culture really pulls you away from. Sometimes it's like, Hey, something bad happened to a patient, but we have an algorithm to go down. We have a process to go down and maybe we might actually recognize the silver lining to this cloud. And on top of that, if done right, yeah, you start looking at, uh, you know, system issues, because I mean, how often have we heard about, you know, things where, you know, like, oh, if you if you get in a backing accident, and you weren't using a backer, you're automatically terminated. And if you go to that company and you're like, hey, um, does that work? They'd be like, what do you mean? Does that work? Like, have you seen since you started terminating people, have you seen a reduction in backing accidents? And they're, they're like, oh, yeah. It's like, no, 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 no. You saw a reduction in the reporting of backing accidents. That's right. what you saw. All your yep. bumpers are fucked up and you don't know how they got that way. And I know I brought that up on, on the show before, but I will tell you this. It, I, here it is. Anyone working for, I would say, I was just going to say private ambulance, but any ambulance company really, um, how many of the bumpers are fucked up and how many people know, how many of you know exactly how, how it got there? Most of you yeah. don't. Most of the time it's like, yep. yeah, that thing happened. Well, who's even going to notice? And I even tell you as a supervisor, I've walked by and been like, oh, that bumper's fucked up. Has it always been that way? Because I don't know. Because we're all <laughs> fucked up. It just looks like one of ours now. You know, like that's how I know it's one of ours. Yeah, truth. You go yeah, in there, if the no, check that's... engine lights off, you're like, crap, did that bulb burn out? Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, should we open? Yeah, well, let's let's do it. Hey everybody, welcome again to another episode of EMS uh twenty twenty. If you guys listened last week, we had Dr. Sites on. It's always great to have him. Uh, please go check out one of our own. It's a uh, it's an episode that I think uh, really hits near and dear to a lot of people because uh, we talk about, you know, having to treat one of your own. And Dr. Seitz comes on and he's entertaining and helpful, uh, as always, and, uh, you know, really adds to the show. Uh, speaking of Dr. Seitz. Dr. Seitz uh, runs the Sights and Sirens program. Just Google Sights and Sirens. That's S-E-I-T-Z and Sirens. You can spell Sirens uh, for your uh, <laughs> EMT basic or paramedic test prep needs. Uh, it's one of the best test prep programs that I've seen out there. I personally took it 
and uh, I I passed, but my NREMT uh, written and national I had to take because I had to get reciprocity to a state that required it. And yeah, I took it, and I've been a long time out of school, and uh, and I was still able to pass. So it's an amazing program, and yeah, and they also have the uh, Back to Basics uh, podcast. This is a really interesting podcast. What they like to do is they'll take a scenario as kind of a start off point to a concept, and they really will kind of dive into that concept and really flesh it out. So it's a good podcast to go ahead and listen to. And uh, yeah, if you get if you get some time, go check them out. There's Back to Basics podcast, um, and also. Um, <laughs> Let's tell me how pretty I am. Yeah, Chris, not very. Oh, shit. Ouch. Chris Seitz, I know. <laughs> Dr. Chris Seitz, not very pretty. I wasn't going to say it because, you know, you know, we're sponsors and everything, but, uh, you know, it's... Uh, <laughs> but very funny. Yeah. Funnier <laughs> than me. <laughs> not going to uh, say that with any kind of... Got a, mm. He's got a great personality. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So let's get on. You've got the call today, Spence. What what are you bringing I me? I do have the call. All right. So this call comes to us from a three-year paramedic on a private ambulance Ooh, dubbed Narcan. One year until he sucks. Just kidding. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, he's great until then. Uh, yeah. Uh, he is dubbed Narcan. Uh, they submitted this call to us via email. And again, we apologize for how long it's taken to work through these calls. I don't think I read this one. I don't remember it's, seeing it. Uh, yeah, it's it's an old one. I claimed it early. Oh god, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's well, good. This will be fun. So uh, here it is. It's you know, I think he said it to us when he was a one year paramedic. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's where I think we're at. Nice. All right. So <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Nark and his uh, paramedic okay, lead partner. J- just for clarification, he was a three year paramedic at the time of this call. He, yes, I was okay. being facetious. He gotcha. is a three year paramedic Perfect. at the time this call was sent in. All right. So, uh, Nark, uh, and his paramedic lead partner, E.T., who has, uh, I believe about six years of experience, uh, work for a private ambulance company that provides both 911 and interfacility transports to a large, mostly urban county. Uh, this EMS system has a large fire department that is described as very involved in the EMS system. Many of the paramedics in that system actually come from the ambulance agency, which I personally think is a perk. Yeah, I like that, especially when uh, and you mean you you like even like the firefighters have all kind of like worked at this this ambulance agency. Yeah. OK, I think that helps yep. with cozy, co- 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 cohesion, uh, cohesion <laughs> <laughs> between agencies. <laughs> Nailing the words. We are on fire tonight. Mm. Loving it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. No, I uh, I agree. Because then it's, it's just everyone's kind of familiar with everyone's roles. Yeah. And, uh, you know, even if you work in the same system, you know, like if you're if you work for different agencies in the same system that are supposed to complement each other, there is like that whole like, what do you have in your kits? Uh, oh, this yeah. Is, this is what we have in ours. Yeah. Um, hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. What do you guys do? <laughs> Yeah. Right. Anyway. All right. So it's around 828 p.m. on a warm spring evening. It's just getting dark outside as ambulance unit 8675309. Jenny, I got your number. Exactly. Uh, Thanks, Tommy Tutons. Along with a fire engine are dispatched for an unconscious mid-20s male who is found in the driveway of their private residence. Uh, as the dispatch notes come in, there is a report that this may be an assault, but Ooh. there is no need to stage as there are no assailants on scene. And the caller is the patient's girlfriend who is at his side. Hmm. Armed with this information, E.T. and Narc head code three to the scene. That's lights and sirens. And it will take about six minutes to get there. Uh, quick pause. Is there or is PD on scene at all in this? Nope. Okay, so quick side note, we'll move on with the call. I'm sure a lot of us are out there. For me, I, I don't, I would be uncomfortable going into this scene because all you have is essentially the girlfriend saying, hey, there's no assailants on scene. For all I know, she's the girl, she's the assailant. That's <laughs> right. You know, so. Yeah, I no, mean, that's fair. All right. It's probably a moot point because it looks like cops are not there and aren't going to be there. But uh, if I heard that, I, I'm like, yeah. The girlfriend found her mid-20s-year-old boyfriend just unconscious, says, doesn't know what happened, but uh, no need for cops or staging. Uh, the assailants are all gone now. I'd just be like, yeah, that's because she did it. Like, that's 
<laughs> I'm just imagining, uh, oh shit, Han Solo, like, yeah, no, everything's, uh, everything's fine down here. Uh, how are you? But <laughs> you, yeah. Did, did she, did she shoot the phone afterwards? I mean, it was a boring conversation anyway. So, <laughs> just her big walking carpet uh, with her <laughs> at any point. All right. Uh, we'll be forwarded by Disney. On the way there, did you notice that all the garbage smashers on the detention level had been shut down? (laughs) Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So they they arrive to a typical uh, single-story home in a cul-de-sac neighborhood. The fire engine is already on scene and, importantly, hasn't blocked access to the driveway with their giant-ass rig. Nice! Yeah, love that. So, Nark and E.T. exit their ambulance, grab their only stretcher, and head towards the patient. And here's what they see. I'm going to point out this. Uh, And when I was a volunteer firefighter and I finally got certified to drive the engine, the very first EMS call I went to, I did exactly this. I just parked the fire engine. I'm like, well, if I can't get down the drive, I'm just going to park it right here. I'm like, that should be enough room for the ambulance to get out or to get behind. And then I got out having driven ambulances for a decade prior to becoming a volunteer firefighter. I went and did the same fucking thing I always bitched about. (laughs) (laughs) It was me. It was me all along. I was the problem. Exactly. Yep. Well, here's what they see. About midway up the driveway is a mid-20s, approximately 6-foot, 180-pound male laying supine, wearing jeans and a long-sleeved t-shirt. Several firefighters are at his side. One firefighter is talking to a very concerned young woman, presumably gathering uh, history of present illness information. The patient appears unresponsive. Nark, whose turn it is to take the call, heads over to the young woman and the uh, and that firefighter to gather information while E.T. head towards the patient. Hmm. Chris, that move, heading to the bystander first, might strike some folks as a strange move. Yeah. Why wouldn't Nark head over to the patient in this case? What are your thoughts? Well, let's see. I mean, the patient's in mid-20s, approximately 6 foot, 180-pound male. Um, I used to bullseye womp rats in my T-16 back home, and they weren't much bigger than that. So I'm not <laughs> too concerned. That, that one stays in. That's fucking great. <laughs> uh, but no, seriously, uh, on this... Um, <laughs> So, all right. So what you have here, I'm not going to say that this is the move you have to do, um, but there, there, this actually isn't terrible placement. So you got to take a look at this system as a whole. Narc, my assumption here is that, that Narc is supposed to, Narc is up. Essentially, this is Narc's call, right? Like Narc's going to be yes. PIC. Okay. So Narc is going to be PIC. So whenever you get into a role and you know you're going to be a PIC, positioning is important. Like where you're going to be to run this scene really, really matters. And one of the things that you don't want to do, and we've talked about this, is you don't want to get your head underwater. You don't want to get too involved in the direct patient contact stuff like interventions. Now, if you don't have a ton of resources, like you might be the only paramedic, your exam is probably going to be a little more paramount to being able to be an effective PIC. But in some systems, especially where it sounds like you really probably know a lot of the people that are going to be on scene and it's it's got a lot of resources in the system. So there's other paramedics there. You can take a farther back position than being right next to the patient. And here's the other thing. The patient's unconscious. The patient does not have a story for you. Uh, The possibly murderous girlfriend and the other (laughs) firefighter may have a story for you that's really going to contribute to being a PIC in this case, because um, we don't know why this guy is unconscious and we really need to figure it out. I mean, I'm not going to stereotype, but anytime you have a mid 20s uh, male who's unconscious or any younger person who's unconscious, one of the things that does need to rise a little bit in your suspicion level is going to be some sort of drug uh, drug usage, like a narcotic overdose or some kind of overdose. Um, and then, of course, there's trauma on top of that. I guess even for older yeah. people, you need to keep medications it's, in mind. And it's so, less... Yeah, it's less likely to be, you know, like some sort of like, you know, uh, internal meta- medical problem. Right. Yeah. Uh, there might be more of a story and, and the history is part of your assessment to get somewhere else. Plus, it takes you out of the fray, if you will. Yeah, that doesn't mean you get to ignore the patient. Um, 
But it does mean that, hey, there's other paramedics there that can get, you know, the nitty gritty, get the monitor on, start an exam, and they can then report to me what they're finding as I'm getting a story. So this actually might be wise positioning. All right. Excellent. Yeah, my thoughts the same. All right. So Nart catches uh, this as the story between the firefighter and the young lady. The young lady is the patient's girlfriend. She says they were hanging out at home watching TV when her boyfriend, a 27 year old by the name of Bobby is not their real name, received a text message. (laughs) That's a long name. Yeah. It's a family name, you know, passed <laughs> yeah. down from generation. It's actually uh, Bobby is not the real name, the fourth. But mm-hmm. uh, anyway, yeah, uh, the patient went. Uh, that is actually the- not a name he has heard in a long time. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> <Damn it. laughs> the patient then went outside to meet someone. The girlfriend uh-huh. continued. Uh, the girlfriend continued watching TV, but after ten to fifteen minutes, felt like Bobby is not the real name. Junior <laughs> should have come back in. Junior, all right. <laughs> she went out to find him unconscious and unresponsive on the ground, and subsequently called nine one one because she couldn't wake him up. Fair. Yeah. The firefighter asks, "So, who came to visit him? Do you know?" Nart can't recall what the girlfriend said exactly, but got the impression based on her hesitation and word choice that this was a more clandestine meeting of perhaps a drug purchasing nature. Mm. She doesn't go any further down that road. It's basically, yeah, I have no idea. I, uh, I know nothing. The firefighter asks, well, do you think he was attacked? You told the 911 call taker that this might have been an assault. Mm-hmm. Uh the girlfriend says she isn't sure. She hinted that Bobby is not their real name. Junior. Seemed on <laughs> the fourth. Uh, <laughs> seemed on edge about the meeting and uh, notes that he usually has a baseball bat by the front door because oh, yeah. he's gotten it. He's gotten into scuffles before. Yeah. And she also notes that it wasn't by the door when she came out, but she doesn't know where it is. Uh, also, she says uh, she didn't hear any signs of a commotion or yelling, but qualified that by adding that she also had the TV on. For medical history, the patient has some metal plates in their neck uh, from an accident, and EMS at this point sort of presumes that uh, possible drug habit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no allergies, no prescribed medications. Gotcha. All right. So, with a better understanding of the story, Narc heads over to the patient and relays those findings to the group, the group being three firefighters and his partner, E.T. E.T. also relays their findings. They have a male patient, GCS3, with some swelling noted to their nose and right cheek, as well as some blood present in the nares. The patient has a palpable pulse of 80, respirations of 12 a minute, no significant bleeding anywhere, And given the facial findings, E.T. and the firefighters have already put a C-collar on the patient, have cut the patient's shirt, and are securing him to a backboard. E.T. says that uh, given the signs of head trauma and an unresponsive patient, they're going to make this a trauma activation. So E.T. is kind of almost stepping into a PIC role a bit here. Yeah, it seems so. Yeah, Yeah, okay. So... The plan is to move the patient into the ambulance to perform a more thorough assessment in better lighting, uh, do any necessary interventions, and get going to the hospital designated as their trauma center. Now, however, with the information that NARC just gave, and with no objections by any member of the team, one of the firefighters gets out two milligrams Narcan and administers it, I am, to the patient's right deltoid. They finished securing the patient to the board. I should mention they did take a quick look at the patient's back prior to securing him to the board, and there's no significant findings there. Good. They then moved them to the stretcher and then into the ambulance where everyone piled in. The patient's pants are cut by E.T. and one of the firefighters while Narc throws the monitor on the patient, not literally just the leads and the blood pressure cuff and the pulse oximeter. Just huffs it over there, <laughs> smacks him right in the chest. <laughs> These aren't the droids you're looking for. <laughs> Thanks. Yep. Another firefighter grabs out the IV supplies and sets up for an IV. The chest, abdomen, arms and legs are unremarkable for signs of trauma. The monitor shows the patient with a heart rate of 88 per minute, 
The BP via the auto cuff is 108 over 61. Uh, SpO2 is 95% on room air. Narc doesn't recall the respiration count, but feels it was unremarkable. The patient remains unresponsive. Of note, Narc also can't recall if the patient had track marks along their arms during the assessment. Okay. So, a firefighter then starts an IV, an 18-gauge in the left AC, and right as they get flash, the patient starts to shift and withdraw their left arm whilst also reaching across with the right hand towards the IV site. Hey, no, 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 hey, the firefighter helpfully shouts, oh, uh, translated out. Hey, no, 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 hey, means the following. My fellow responders, the patient appears to be stirring and is about to make futile this intravenous access attempt I'm performing. Please intervene on my behalf, as both my hands are currently obligated to ensuring that this intravenous catheter isn't removed in an unsanctioned fashion. Your prompt actions are very needed and very appreciated. Perfect. And I'm guessing that's yep. exactly, yeah. That's what everyone that's, heard. Yeah, that's that's what everyone heard with hey, 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 no, 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 hey. Uh, side note, uh, Peter Canning is a, a paramedic who wrote the book Medic 471, uh, made fun of himself for yelling at his partner, hey, grab me the thing. And his partner responded, <laughs> what thing? And Peter goes, the thing, the, the thing I need. And yeah. his partner's like, the thing? Yes, the thing, the the." the his partner's like, okay, okay, help me out here. <laughs> and I'll, 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 full disclosure, I've also demanded the thing. And then I've laughed at myself for like, oh, I need the thing. Shit. Yeah. Uh, mm, yeah. Well, and then I get I'll a kick to, out of it. What, what I'll do to sometimes apparently clarify also asking for the thing is I'll make my hands do the motion that we typically do with the thing. Like if it's a BVM. Oh, yeah. All right, so everyone scrambles and stops the patient from fucking up the IV. Narc, who is sitting at the airway seat and is closest to the patient head, tells the patient to stop moving. Get off me, the patient says, and Narc is happy with this turn of events. The patient appears to be waking up with that Narcan administration, and Narc explains that they are paramedics and they are there to help. What's your name, Narc? Write down. Exactly right. right. What's your name? Narc asks. My name is Bobby is not the real name. The fourth. The patient accurately responds. <laughs> Esquire. <laughs> Esquire. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Bobby and is not their real name. And Bobby is not the real name associates. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so Narc asks, do you know where you are? Uh an ambulance the patient responds opening their eyes to kind of take in their surroundings the follow-up the follow-up question of like okay true but how about this where do you live is also answered appropriately do you know what day it is the patient takes a moment but gives the day and also gets the follow-up question of month right nice all right so can you tell us what happened <clears throat> can you tell us what happened narc asks bobby is not the real name uh nothing happened the patient responds Nart then explains to the patient how they found him laying on the ground, unresponsive, with swelling to their face. But the patient gives no insight as to how they got there. And and this was my question to Nark. Also didn't seem curious or invested <laughs> into figuring this mystery out. <laughs> when given the story and asked again for any insight, the patient just responds, I don't know. Ah, well, damn. Nark checks the patient's pupils and they're both three millimeters and reactive. E.T. asks, were you attacked? Your nose is swollen and bloody. And the patient again says, I don't know. Let me out. <laughs> we can't let you out, E.T. informs them. We're taking you to the hospital. I don't want to go, the patient says. Are you hurting anywhere? One of the firefighter asks. And the patient responds, my head hurts. Are you nauseated? Sick to your stomach, E.T. asks. And the patient says, yes. Hmm. And by the way, the patient is now GCS 13. That's... Eyes three, they open their eyes to verbal. Verbal four, they gave verbal four. Uh, they say they cite confusion over events as confused response. I could go either way. Mm -hmm. Motor six. Basically, what they describe is this. When the patient isn't interacted with or spoken to or poked with an IV, they just sort of lay docile on the stretcher and don't say or really do anything. But mm. when talked to, they do respond. And so far, anyway, they follow commands. And while they did express that they'd like to leave, 
The patient made no additional effort to do so, and no one on the crew is at all thinking about refusal at this point, so the topic doesn't get brought up further, which essentially you know, kills that whole line of, <laughs> of problems. <laughs> So instead, the crew continue to work. Nart grabs out some IV Zofran and draws it up and hands it to one of the fire medics, who then refuses to administer it, saying, nope, I didn't draw that up. You drew it. You administer it. So Nark has to kind of climb around them, because remember, it's a crowded ambulance, uh, and give the four milligram Zofran to the patient. And they were a little miffed about this. Chris, what do you think about um, that? <clears throat> I mean, it's kind of it's kind of a minor little offshoot here, but it is something worth noting. Um, I I'm for the sentiment. I'm not for the delivery. And I given this is a delivery that, you know, is told to us by a different party. So we only know what we what we were told. Yeah, but absolutely. I mean, there, there's a lot of it going around it, to avoid med errors. It's best to not pass a medication to somebody else. Um, if uh, we just did an episode uh, called, oh, let's see, let me check it out here. It's called Minor Mistake, Major Consequences, where medications were passed to somebody else with terrible results. Um, you know, there there's more to that than just that, but that can happen yeah. sometimes. And uh, so I don't blame the guy for being like, hey, like, I didn't see what you drew up. You're just handing me something and saying, hey, this is Zofran. Uh, like, I, I don't... I understand the discomfort there. Um, yeah. But I think it could be like, hey, man, I'm sorry, dude. I didn't see you draw that up. Uh, you can either ask, like, get some clarifying things like, hey, do you have the vial? Like, show me the vial really quick. And the person would be like, oh, here's the vial. If they present you with an empty Zofran vial that has two milliliters in it for four milligrams, and you look at the, at the syringe and it has two cc's in there and the other vial is unexpired, then you may be able to reasonably tell yourself, okay, I'll go ahead and push this. Some people may still not because for all you know, you know what they handed you isn't from that vial you know that's one that's in their pocket some people i mean that would be pretty rare but i mean yeah it's a valid point but there could be a delivery or it could also be this like hey uh sorry i didn't see you draw that up my department has these rules about it would you mind administering it and then the person would be like oh yeah not a problem and even if they got to get around the patient they probably won't even remember the interaction later on things like being like god i had to get around them and get around the patient those are things you remember when you're mad at the person who made you do it you know what i mean yeah no dude for sure yeah i mean i i will say i've had a few med errors happen that way where like i've but in those cases like it's where i've drawn up two doses in one syringe because we are eventually going to give both and then like even despite telling the person who i'm handing the med to like hey this is what's in there this is how much this is how much we should push a couple times i've had that person like push the whole thing in one shot and so like i get where that comes from and i again like like you i can understand the rationale behind the move but and i i agree that those other options would probably be better and here's why i think like yeah show me the vial or you know something along that lines is better because the problem with the firefighter saying like hey i'm not pushing what you drew up it does it only seems to prevent a med error it's it's like like if the person drawing up the medication did drop the wrong amount, you're not preventing an error by saying like, I'm not touching your syringe of medication. You do right. it. You're just removing yourself as a person who could prevent an error exactly. and just making the error like their fault. So that's just my two cents on it. Um, I, yeah. Anyway, back to the story, because here's where things get interesting. That small tangent aside, E.T. says to the group. We need to intubate this patient. Now his name makes a lot more sense. <laughs> I, I, it's just because he wanted to phone home the entire time. I figured, yeah, I figured this was actually going to be an OLMC thing. It's like, oh, ET phoned home. I get it. Uh, now I feel dumb because ET also stands for, <laughs> en- also stands for endotracheal tube. <laughs> and, uh, ET and his alter ego king. Uh, <laughs> gotcha. Well, that would have given it away. Yep. ET king right. is a backup. There we go. Ahead. Yep. Sorry. All right. uh, yeah, so in my discussion with Narc about this, they said they were surprised and taken back by this announcement from their partner because they thought it was sort of out of left field. And they had a sudden adrenaline dump and some thoughts, which I get to share with you. The first thought was, oh, my God, I could get a tube here because they're, you know, PIC. Um, and they said that a part of them wanted to intubate the patient because they really wanted to get a tube. And I, 
I kind of get that. I mean, I'll admit getting a tube yeah. feels pretty goddamn good. Yeah, it does. Um, but fighting that and the reason for the adrenaline dump with that announcement and that thought is that they are really admittedly nervous about intubation. This is a system that almost never uh, intubates. And the last time they got a chance to do so was during their internship, you know, three years prior. So this and and I'll even add this isn't a practiced intervention in the system. They don't do recurring training. They don't have checklists. They uh, uh, use direct laryngoscopy. Um, and so they were really, really nervous about doing the skill. Um, but adding to that hesitation and really what their second thought was is that they didn't think the patient really needed it either. They believe that this patient is an opiate overdose, not a head injury. The patient seems to have come around with the Narcan administration. So as they're thinking this, one of the fire medics says, really? I don't see a reason to innovate this guy. And Narc finds themselves agreeing like, yeah, I, I don't think we need to either. E.T. then sort of pulls their partner aside in the ambulance. Uh, so basically, they're just next to each other in that airway seat area. Mm -hmm. And the firefighters are along the bench. And E.T. says, like, look, I don't care what they say. They being the group of firefighters mm -hmm. who are overhearing this entire conversation, by the way. That's awkward. Says, this is your patient. I really think we should intubate them. If you're hesitant because you're nervous about doing it or whatever, I'll do it. I can tube this guy no problem. This patient does need a tube. So what do you think? Narc says they consider their partner's statement, but honestly, they just didn't think the patient needed it. Okay. They tell E they tell ET like, look, he came around with Narcan. He's breathing fine on his own. His sats are good. I think let's not make more work for ourselves by giving us another thing to manage. ET says but that doesn't explain his face. I think he needs a tube, but it's your call. Like, it's your patient. But like I said, I can do this if you don't want to. Mm -hmm. Narc essentially says, yeah, nah, let's not. And they depart towards a ho uh, trauma hospital, code three, because the patient is still at this point considered a potential trauma candidate by all the crew members. Yeah. Do the, the ambiguously poor history of events. And ET's driving at this point, right? Uh, yes, E.T. Okay. gets up front and drives and all the firefighters essentially go with. Oh, um, OK. Yeah. So two sets of vitals are taken en route and both are basically or both were basically the same. Heart rates in the 80s, BPs around 110 systolic, SpO2 stayed above 94 percent on room air from what E.T. recalls or excuse me, uh, from what NARC recalls. Uh, but the patient's mental status did decline during the transport. They noted that the patient became more somnolent throughout the trip. At first, the patient was pretty easy to wake up and talk with. But as the trip continued, Bobby is not their name. The fourth Esquire of Bobby and Bobby is not the real name and Bobby is not the real name. Associates uh, <laughs> required louder and repeat verbal commands to get the patient to respond. So by the time they were a few minutes out, the patient would only briefly respond with a sternal rub before returning to that somnolent state. Gotcha. Um, so really quick, like I know they took some more vitals, um, but did they do any repeat assessments? Like, you know, your typical secondary trauma exam, like looking at like neuro checks, did they check pupils again? Um, end title by chance. Uh, those are fantastic thoughts. And, uh, yeah, the narc and the firefighters did, uh, none of those things. Uh, the reassessment. They, I was gonna say, did they try like maybe another bump of Narcan as he, as a guy started to get, cause normally yeah. I'm not for Narcanning someone just, just to see, but in this case you're talking about, I, I think it, this is one of the few cases where using Narcan diagnostically is important because, because typically, like if I know it's an isolated narcotics overdose, like, hey, person's found in their bed with a needle in their arm, I'll be like, OK, let's give them enough Narcan to make sure their saturations are good and that they're not completely uptended so they can protect their own airway. And let's call it good. I don't need them to drive the fucking ambulance. Um, <laughs> right. But yeah. in this case, the concern is like, hey, do they have a head bleed and this is going to get worse? I mean, a repeat Narcan to and see if that keeps him conscious and protecting his own airway is. Yeah. I, I think a, a good part of a reassessment I, for this guy. I 
absolutely agree. That would have been great. Uh, I yeah, I definitely don't do want to. No, they absolutely did not do that. Okay. I, I, and I, I share your thing. I also don't want to wake up, you know, like, like, all right, hey, man, we woke you up. I need you to drive the ambulance. Yeah. Hey, why are you taking us to this cul-de-sac? And why do you have this baseball bat? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Uh, My girlfriend's really going to murder right you guys now. now. <laughs> you should have staged. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, yeah. The, the reassessment piece essentially was vital monitoring and occasionally trying to wake the patient up with a uh, you know, loud talking and a sternal rub. All right, so uh, basically, we're going to beat the trauma patient up to wake him up. OK. Yeah. They Sorry. they didn't do any of the that. That's a f- solid idea with the Narcan. They didn't do it. Okay. Um, Narc did say that they were concerned about vomiting. And so he had suction at the ready, mm-hmm. which, you know probably a good thing uh but beyond that yeah really nothing else was done during the transport so on arrival to the at the trauma hospital the patient is taken into a large er bay and is surrounded by the trauma team narc begins the report this is a 28 year old male found down by his girlfriend in the driveway of their home He was unconscious on our arrival with signs of a head injury. He had gone to meet some people. We're not sure who. And when his girlfriend went to check on him, he was found down. Uh, While this is being said, the trauma team has already started their uh, assessment. And the trauma doctor angrily interjects, why isn't this patient intubated? Narc says they were thrown by the question and helpfully responded with, uh, he's Posturing, the trauma doctor shouted at Narc oh, after God. performing a sternal rub. Narc sees the activity, but to him, it looks more like a patient shrugging their shoulders and grimacing with pain. Uh, Narc continues to explain. And by the way, phenomenal defense he's mounting for himself here. Really? Easily. He's going to be another. He's going to be a partner at Bobby is not the real name and Bobby is not the real name <laughs> associates. Perfect. <laughs> Thankfully uh, for Narc. One of the other ER doctors goes over and kind of quietly repeats the sternal rub uh, while Narc is getting just fucking reamed. Uh, the patient then wakes up and yells, what? He's not. <laughs> yep. He's not posturing. The other doctor says the patient wakes up enough to answer their question. And the trauma doctor stops yelling at Narc, but makes it very clear they're no longer interested in hearing their report. Of course. Narc tries to explain to the other doctor their dilemma and says that they think the patient uh, just roused to Narcan and the ER doctor just sort of shrugs. Nice. <laughs> now, here's the catch and this thus the submission of this call to us all right both et and narc feel that they were right et feels super justified in their thinking because the trauma doctor ripped narc a new one for not intubating the patient narc feels that they were right because the patient did wake up so Mm. what say you chris uh, so Who is we, right? So we we are judge judying this call right now. That's what we are. We are the judge <laughs> judy this. All right. So let me let me kind of sum up the call really quick before before I place my verdict. All right. So this is what we have. We got a mid twenties patient who was totally not assaulted by his girlfriend because she said so. Um, <laughs> who may have been attacked and may have a close hit injury or may have an opiate overdose. We don't really know. Basically, he's found down. Um, and there, there's potential for narcotics based on history and that he was going out to just meet some rando people. Um, but there's also signs that he took some face trauma. So it could be one or the other or both. And there doesn't really seem to be any clear answer to which one because the girlfriend doesn't know shit. And even when he wakes up, neither does he. The lead medic for the call of narc is thinking overdose because, hey, gave the guy Narcan. He started coming around and the ET guy was thinking, hey, uh, head injury. And we need to get some some innovation to protect his airway before it becomes a vomit filled mess that he's unable to control because, look, his GCS keeps declining. Uh, so it kind of boils down to this is which path do you take and which one uh, is right. And I got it like this is what makes EMS so hard is we kind of train in this. Oh, like pick a path. What's the problem? You know, like that kind of stuff. And the reality is people can have and often do have more than one problem. And so what you really aren't doing is you're not trying to sit there and figure out which one it is. You're figuring out which treatment you need to prioritize. So how do you do that? You start filling buckets. 
So we've talked about this a long time ago in the show. I want to say it was like one of our first three episodes. It was uh, a yeah. hypo- hypothesis for hypotension. Um, yeah. Good episode. And go back and actually check that one out. That's like, that's an oldie, but it is a goodie. Um, it really so, is. Yeah. Um, but keep in mind, it, it's our early days. So if it sucks in some ways, that, that might be why. Uh, but so <laughs> we have, yeah. So, so you got to start filling buckets. So let's kind of look at, so I'm going to sit here and start throwing in some, like some head injury stuff. So here's the thing. You undeniably, there is physical signs of head trauma. There's swelling of the Fa- nose and cheek. Facial trauma. Fish. So I'm going to go off on a quick rant. Uh, yeah. Swelling of the nose, cheek and blood and nares. The word facial trauma to me means like a dog bit your nose. Like there's something where the mechanism a facial trauma to me, I think I've heard it in, in my experience where someone just doesn't really want to use the word head trauma. And so like, because then they should have totally done something different. So they'll come up and say like, oh, it's uh, it's facial trauma. It's like the term chest wall pain when you don't want to do a 12 lead in a car accident call you know you're like oh this is chest wall pain how the fuck do you know (laughs) like like i say yeah the pain starts here on the surface but it stops an inch below that so it's just a chest wall (laughs) like you don't know and when you're saying ah it's facial trauma it's like here's the thing if you tape an egg to a wall and then hit the egg with a hammer and you tell me hey it's just the egg i'm gonna be like fuck off there's a dent in the wall behind it it's the same thing you got a nose on a face the nose does not it, the nose is not a crumple zone for your head okay <laughs> it doesn't work well okay things are going to transfer right back into it so i would call this head trauma pretty pretty straightforward uh, so we do have undeniable head trauma happened this could be possibly, and if you kind of look at a stream of consciousness, what we have going on, we have them unconscious, then becoming lucid again, and then going unconscious again. This could be that lucid interval we talk about when we talk about intracranial bleeds. It totally yeah. could be that. He's confused about the events. And something that kind of strikes me as odd is people who have overdosed are really keen on finding any reason to say it was anything but drugs. And so like, like I've gone on plenty of people who are like, oh, I was attacked. And it's like, are you sure you just didn't do a bunch of uh, oxycodone behind the uh, 7-Eleven here? Uh, no, no, I was totally attacked. Um, I had my preceptor on my internship. Whenever we give Narcan, do Narcan wake ups, people would always deny and they'll always take the first available excuse. So a lot of times he would say this, he would say, yeah, uh, Narcan really only does. I mean, all it does, like we, that's what we gave you to wake you up. All that does is flush out narcotics. Unless of course you've eaten green jello. That's the other thing that sometimes it'll wake people up from like, Oh yeah, I had a bunch of green jello and he could insert whatever he wanted to in there. It's like, unless you're actually a very talented tap dancer, sometimes that'll wake you up out of unconsciousness too. <laughs> and they would say those kind of things. They would climb onto those things. Tap dancers a joke, but so, so yeah. I, I'm a little bit curious when it's like, hey, man, like, were you attacked? If he knew he did drugs, a lot of times they'd be like, oh, yeah, totally was attacked. You know, like that was, I, that was totally it. So I'd kind of see that. But now they could also be scared of admitting that a drug deal happened in the first place. So maybe it's not the finding I think it is. And then the other thing, too, is the time frame to me, because what we know is the girlfriend said, yeah, 10 to 15 minutes ago, he walked out. It's not an impossible time frame. But it seems like an odd time frame. So 10 to 15 minutes ago, he's last seen normal walking out of the house. And in that time frame, he was he met some people, got assaulted and got high enough to pass out. Now, he could have taken drugs before he ever walked out of the house. We don't know. Yeah. But that time frame may be something I could see a paramedic consider being like, that's a, that, that, that's an awfully weird chain of events. Like, sure. hey, I want to buy your oxy. I'm going to try some of your oxy. Punch me in the face. You know, I'm like, that's a pretty quick. You know, yeah, no, anyway. that, that's that, that's fair. Uh, yeah. Well, let's uh, let's fill up the opiate bucket. Um, yeah, let's, fill, know, so, ooh, let's fill up our bucket of opiates. <laughs> uh, so the patient appears to have responded to Narcan and the decrease in level of consciousness during the trip kind of fits with what I'd expect with an opiate overdose. I've given patients like opiates can last longer than the effects of Narcan. You know, I've gone on patients who have overdosed mm-hmm. and we've given them Narcan, waken them up. And then throughout the trip, they just, they start kind of nodding off again. You know, you're, you start talking to them and they're, they, you know, they're like, yeah, man. So then I was, uh, and you're like, yeah, you were what? Oh, what? What was that? Yeah, I was. Um, yeah. So anyway, point yeah. explained. Uh, so that could explain the the kind of that slow decline 
probably better than I think a lucid interval would because like my understanding with yeah. lucid interval and again, you know, medicine gets to kind of do whatever the fuck it wants uh, is that, you know, it should be sort of a return to consciousness followed by a rapid decline. But mm-hmm. again, I wouldn't bet my cert on that. So <laughs> fair enough. Um, it, was it, and it, I think your point, like, was it really confusion about events or a mission about events. This wasn't settled very well. Narc felt that it was a mission versus like true confusion, which I, I've definitely seen happen. Um, and this patient, because of a valid fear of like punishment, judgment, or whatever, decides it's better just not to tell people things like drug use. Um, so that, that's a fair thought, but I, I think Narc also didn't push further down that path to really mm-hmm. suss out that better either um and i've i've also seen providers assume a mission when it really was confusion so we need to be careful not to let our own biases like confirmation bias color in that uh, incomplete picture um another thing the pupils were described as three millimeters and equal after narcan administration and pupils can return to normal post narcan administration uh, but i think this is kind of weak evidence at best uh, had the pupils been unequal, I would have absolutely gone more with closed head injury. But yeah. being equal, this is sort of meh as, you know, like I've, we've, I've done plenty of transports where people have had pretty significant head injuries or, you know, bleeds and their pupils are equal. So, um, I, I think here the, the, the better thing to have done would have been to check pupils before they push the Narcan uh, right. to see if they were pinpoint and really constricted and if that changed with administration. But that's not what happened. So really the best thing that I have, you know, like I have for this bucket is that they seem to respond to Narcan and they seem to decline, which fits that profile better. So I, so, um, I think the the big thing for me here, though, is like more evidence should have been gathered. And that's always going to be my answer when you're confused about what path to try and take. Um, like, for for example, like, how was the patient found by the girlfriend? Was he prone? Was he laying face down? Did she have to roll him over? Was he found by her supine? Did he leave his baseball bat at the door? Who knows? Um, uh, yeah. No, that's a really good point. Uh, dude, I, I lived in a studio apartment, uh, and I had friends of mine come over and they drank heavily. Yeah, uh, your friends did. In right. my, in my youth. Yeah. Uh, and a guy named Adam just like passed out under my dining room table. Uh, dining room is, it, it was a kitchen dining room, living room. Like he just passed out under my table and uh, he just kind of lay under the table prone for about a half hour or so. And he ended up waking up confused and with a pretty big bloody nose. And the first thing he asked was like, who fucking did this to me? Right. (laughs) It's like, no, but you, you did that to you. You, Passed out under a fucking table, dude. I. <laughs> oh goodness. That's yeah. Awesome. So like, yeah, that like that facial stuff could have been, you know, like he passed out and fucking lay prone on the ground and you know, right. like, I don't know. So yeah, that's a great question that should yeah. have been asked. <laughs> uh, and again, like kind of the missing repeat neuro assessments and even like. Uh, I really think repeat Narcan administration. Uh, I mean, like I said earlier, I am just, I'm not keen on giving Narcan uh, to patients who are, ma- who are maintaining their own airway and saturating just fine. I don't think there's any point in just waking someone up just to be like, aha, it was a narcotics overdose. But in this case, it's kind of diagnostic, right? Like if you're really considering, and I think it's reasonable. I think, by the way, I'll say this, both paramedics have reasonable concerns. And absolutely. And have reasonable treatments. And I think it's reasonable to be worried about a head injury in this guy. And I think repeat dose of Narcan would really kind of sell me uh, on on one way or the other. Um, had they given a small dose and the patient's mental status improved again, that would be pretty firm evidence that opiates were, in fact, uh, 
in play. And the other thing, though, I mean, fresh track marks again, like uh, that's not the best evidence. Uh, you know, maybe he donates plasma uh, earlier that day to get money, then go like buy drugs. You know, I don't know. But, um, <laughs> it's also one of those things that coming from someone who has donated plasma for money, but not for drugs. Um, so, <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, uh, your Jedi mind tricks don't work on me. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I, uh, I will say this. One of the best ways that I've heard paramedics described is they're like doctors that may have gone to juvie and can't quite be a doctor. Like that's, that's a paramedic. It's like doctors that have a history. Yeah. Like the kids that were too cool to be doctors, but still wanted to do it. Uh, but anyway, nice. I think it's an oversell even at that. But, uh, yeah. but here's the big thing though, is there's nothing to say that both things can't be at play. And I would even wager that, yeah, they probably are both at play. Like, and so here, here's what, what I think kind of, kind of comes down to is, is this, we don't really know, and we don't often get to know exactly what the right thing is. Hell, even the doctors, uh, didn't know at first when they got in there, uh, when they were given the story from EMS, like one was like, Hey, why didn't you fucking intimate? And then got like a terrible explanation from narc. Uh, and then the <laughs> other, then the other one came in and was like, yeah, he's fine. And so by the way, <laughs> It is never, and so like earlier, like ET felt justified because that doctor. I know we do this in we do this in EMS all the time, and we always feel that like the first thing that happens when when the patient gets in is something we should have done in the field. Just because a doctor comes in and says you should have done something different, that's not the end all be all argument. And this case is evidence of that in spades. So we got to kind of use the tools and judgment we have available to help us figure out what to do assessment history, repeat assessments. And I would include Narcan as kind of a weird assessment, but still it is to figure out what the most appropriate thing to do is. And that's filling in the buckets. That's the filling in the buckets. So given what we know here, like I said, I could side either way. Head injury is probably the most concerning of the two things. And we've talked about that before being like, Hey, like treat the worst thing. And there was physical evidence suggesting that, but paralyzing and intubating someone is also a high risk procedure that we don't want to do unnecessarily, especially in this system. There is no VL. It's all DL. Um, it, it's, you know, they don't regularly train on doing something they really should be regularly training, uh, on doing. Yeah. I also, I also want to point out that intubation is not the only treatment for a head injury. You know, I mean, I, I've transported many people who are otherwise perfectly conscious with good levels of consciousness. So how do we work through this? So ultimately, it's got to come down to like some decision, right? Like you have to do something. You can't do a pull like a critical crossroads. Go listen to that episode um, where you just don't <laughs> yeah. do anything and the patient just dies. And now you I mean, at least now you know what to do. But still, um, you got to come to some point where you got to do something. Um <laughs> even if it might not be the best answer. So the call's got to move forward. The worst thing we can do is freeze and have nothing get done because we couldn't decide. So here's how I would have done this call. So you walk in on scene um, and you're going to be PIC. I think the initial PIC positioning was fine. Get back to where you can get a story. Should have gotten more of a story, but uh, the first thing that should have been done is get a little bit more like, hey, how is he found? What else do we know about there? See if you can get those kind of things. Um, I think it's a good... Good thing they did a head, the head to assessment. Trauma was recognized early on. I'm glad they put the guy on a backboard because uh, that tells me you're not ruling out trauma. Uh, and then given the history, I am Narcan totally appropriate. I think the call up to that point um, is managed just fine. I would like to see uh, some assessment of the patient's oxygenation and uh, respiratory status done a little bit sooner because uh, I don't think they actually did any of that till they got to the back of the ambulance. Um I don't know why you wouldn't do it in a parking lot, but uh, okay. Uh, yeah. So yeah, there, there's that. Uh, but then here's what I would do. I think once we, th- we saw the Narcan start kicking in and the patient's coming around and we're ventilating well, we're respiratory, you know, the respirations are good. I would have them on end title as oh, well. Go ahead. They did, they did do respirations of 12 in the, in the driveway. In the driveway. Okay. So they got respirations of 12, which is pretty normal, but you know, I think a sat monitor would have been good to see like, okay, like, but are these restorations of 12 actually doing the job of oxygenating the blood? For sure. For sure. Yeah. So that'd be a big thing there. Um, but uh, once we got the Narcan on board and we started to see the guy come around, I think there's a couple things you have to do is you can't disregard that there's a head injury. So I think keeping this guy C collared and on a board and, treating this as potential head injury by immobilizing this guy is perfectly acceptable. And then essentially utilizing Narcan to see if that maintains his level of consciousness. And I think if you're maintaining a level of consciousness 
And basically, if, if your big indicator for problem uh, for a bigger problem is a decreasing level of consciousness and Narcan takes that away, what are you left with? You're left with a patient who's conscious alert yeah. and oriented, except for the event, won't recall the event. That's fine. But you're left with a patient who's otherwise conscious and alert with some swelling on their face. And if you had just that patient, you wouldn't innovate that guy. Yeah. So I think in this case, it's totally acceptable to use Narcan uh, to wake this guy up. Uh, I would be using half milligram IV dosages is, is how I would do it uh, yeah. to wake this guy up and, and maintain his mental status. And I don't think intubation is absolutely 100% necessary at that point. Uh, you do have some concern when it comes to this guy and vomiting. And I can hear a bunch of people being like, yeah, but what if he vomits? I think that's a legitimate concern. But if he's able to maintain his own airway, there's nothing that probably tipping him on his side and suctioning wouldn't be able to solve at that point. You have an otherwise awake patient. Um, if he was still simulant through the Narcan uh, and like not and you weren't able to improve the guy's mental status at all with the Narcan, then, yeah, I would say you have to intubate for two reasons. One, either he has so much narcotics on board that he's just not going to be able to maintain his own airway. And at which point innovate, or it is a head injury at which point innovate. But yeah, I think that's the missing part there is we just really don't know. There wasn't enough evidence to really call it either way. And I think that's the, that that's the big problem here with this whole treatment plan that he had was that he didn't build in those like, Hey, how can I kind of test my hypothesis? How can yeah. I see if I'm wrong? How can I see if the thing I've decided it is, you know, um, is changing isn't the thing it is. And I think this is one of the things that I, I dislike about like the, the way we learned things in school was you had to find the one thing. Yeah. And then that was it. The scenario ended. They're like, all right, cool. You figured out that this was a kidney problem, you know, like, okay, cool. That's what it is. But we never learned like, Hey, here's what you're going to do to make sure like in, in real life, you know, how to, how to make sure you're not wrong and how to be able to change your mind and be flexible with that. Like a real life example is, you know, like if you go on somebody who has chest pain and they look ill, but their 12 lead looks okay-ish, it's not screaming STEMI, you know, there's nothing there. I like, I don't have to decide right then and there that this isn't a STEMI patient. Yeah. I have like, I can go like, okay, it's not a STEMI yet. I'm going to reassess and keep seeing if I'm wrong about that or if that changes, not that I'm wrong, you know, but like if that changes and then if it changes, then I will go with that new evidence. But you have to look for that new evidence. Absolutely. You know, you have to do the, the you have to do the repeat 12 leads to find it. And so mm -hmm. I think your point is salient. Like he needed to build into his treatment plan, that reassessment piece to kind of continue to test that hypothesis and draw that line to where it's like, all right, if this if this we fill this bucket with this, like if if the bucket starts filling the other way, then I need to, you know, like abandon my opiate bucket and hop on the head injury bucket. And like, yeah. and that's fine. You can do that. So, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's and just kind of the other thing, too, that, that I want to be cautioned with, with reassessments. Reassessing absolutely needs to be done, but make sure you're not doing your reassessment in a fashion that's just causing confirmation bias. Um, a lot of times what we do is once we've picked a path. We tend to reassess and only find the things that tell me that I'm right. That's a great point. So here's what I would say. We talk about filling buckets, right? So we fill the buckets with evidence. When you go to reassess, empty the buckets out again and reassess, especially in calls like this. So what really should have been done like on these reassessments is neuro exam. Look at the pupils. You know, Do you have um, oh, what's it called? Diplopia when it's different. But anyway, do you have unequal uh, unequal pupils? Uh, do you have uh, other signs of head injury uh, developing? Your vital signs? Are you starting to see things like Cushing's triad, those sort of things? Um, and then you have Narcan at the same time. Just start gathering all that evidence again. So anyway, that's my two cents on it. Yeah. No, I that's I think that's absolutely what should have happened here. And then and then at the end, there would have been more evidence to say one way or another. Yeah. You know, like, hey, man. Yeah, you said to ET, but listen, I gave like little pushes of Narcan on the way up, you know, and uh, he kept waking up. So yeah. mm, that seems more in line with opiate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, ultimately, the people who get to know are the doctors after they see T. Yeah, ex <laughs> ex exactly. <laughs> yep. Um, I, I think the other piece to this call um, was sort of the clinical communication uh, between the two crew members. And then also at the hospital, um, at, here's my take on this. And Chris, you've said this before, so I'm basically just going to 
take what you say and present Good. it as my own, uh, <laughs> which is when you're trying to convince somebody of a particular treatment path, you got to talk clinically, give them clinical findings. You know, uh, don't I, I think. Well, maybe it's true based on what uh, Narc said, but saying like, if you're scared to do it, I'll do it. <laughs> and taking kind of that line instead of addressing it from a clinical fashion. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's not going to convince anybody. In and fact, it's probably it going to even... make people super defensive. <laughs> exactly. It's going to make them go the other way. I, I ain't scared. I'm just right. Exactly. Yeah. Like I'm not, I'm not going to admit in front of all these firefighters that, you know, like I'm terrified of doing this really right. awesome thing that I shouldn't be afraid of doing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And by the way, you should have a healthy dose of fear going into any kind of end of patient scenario. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so I, again, there, I think the best thing would just to have been, Hey, here's why I'm saying this, you know, like, He's got facial trauma. He's got head trauma. Like, we don't know what it is. It, it, it sounds like it, you know, like he's not waking up. And when he does wake up, he's confused. He's nauseated. Those are all indications of a potential closed head injury. Yeah. You know, and then um, having uh, Narc just sort of go like, yeah, but on this other side, this is what's going on. And I really don't, I, you know, like, I don't want to unnecessarily intubate somebody who just overdosed on opiates and is breathing on their own. And then from there, you guys can like, they could have come up with that kind of like, all right, well, here's the line we'll draw in the sand, you know, yeah. so that, you know, both people feel like their is their needs were addressed, that those concerns were addressed. Here's my thing for at the hospital. You got to be careful with kind of what you lead with. Uh, just like dispatch info can lead you down a rabbit hole and prime you into thinking the wrong thing you are before you arrive on scene. <laughs> you can do this to the hospital. Oh, uh, yeah. Giving report to a large team kind of means you need to choose your word carefully. Narc led with, hey, this is a trauma call instead of what he treated, which was an opiate overdose with some facial trauma. <laughs> Yeah, this confused the crap out of the team and really seemed to piss off that trauma doctor who then rightly called him out for not treating what appeared to be a significant trauma that he was telling them about. Yeah. I think in this case, a better opening in this situation is to say, like, hey, guys, this is a weird one. Hear me out. So that way they go like, OK, fuck, there's a story. You know? Yeah. And and go into it that way. And by the way, like. In weird calls, I, there's a good, there's a, most of that transport on the way in is so long as the patient is stable is me figuring out how the fuck I'm going to tell this to the nurse oh, yeah. and or doctor. You're like, I, I put a lot of thought into this because I don't want them getting the wrong picture. Um, so in this case, you know, like, Hey, everyone, are you ready for report? Yes. Okay. This is a weird one. Essentially, we were called for a 27-year-old male who was found down outside by his girlfriend. The story provided to us by the girlfriend and then a little later by the patient was very vague. And it seems possible that the patient recently used narcotic drugs as the patient roused after I am Narcan. But we also have signs of trauma as he has some swelling around his nose, cheek and some blood present in his nares. Something along that lines really kind of sets fantastic. the stage better. I think that's fantastic because what they're going to be looking. Oh, sorry, Spence. You had more of my cut. No, no, no. That was it, man. Yeah. Uh, I think this is fantastic because it really, here's what they want because trauma teams want to move fast. Get, get, get that through. Like they're not going to, they, they don't want to hear the whole story up front. What they want is they want to know the possibilities as soon as possible. That's what this kind of does. You come up like, Hey, this is weird. I, I would be, I think Spencer's version is perfect. Uh, mine might be too quick, but what I was thinking I would do is I would have walked in and been like, Hey everybody. So this is kind of an odd story. We kind of got two things going on. One is possible narcotic overdose. The other one is possible head trauma. Here's why. And then kind of go and go into the other stuff. So that way, like you put them on your thought train right away and they're like, okay, so what you got? Uh, he has a history of narcotic abuse, uh, with that history, gave him some Narcan, started to bring his altered LSC around. However, when we found him, we also noted some facial trauma. We've been able to maintain his LSC just fine by giving him additional doses of Narcan, but we went ahead and C-spined him and brought him to you because we're also worried about potential head trauma that we couldn't rule out. Yeah. 
And then you yeah. just kind of like drop that on and then they're like, all right, I'm there. I know you're two, you're two confusing things. That's not what happened on this one. No. You walked in, gave them one street and then didn't explain why you didn't walk down it. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> Oh, man. Hey, guys, there's one direction to go. We hit the brakes. Here you go. Like that's like, <laughs> Yeah, so that's it. Yeah, so. Here's your unresponsive head trauma. Yeah. Well, everyone, thanks again for listening to another fabulous episode of EMS 2020. Uh, we still want to thank Dr. Seitz again for joining us on our last episode, our last episode being one of our own. Uh, Dr. Seitz uh, runs Seitz and Sirens. That's S-E-I-T-Z. And Sirens, just Google it, uh, hit it up on uh, social media, and you can find Sites and Sirens. They're all about uh, EMS uh, test prep, whether you're an EMT basic or paramedic going in to get that national cert. They will help you get there. Uh, on top of that, if you would like uh, 20% off, just use the promo code EMS2020 when signing up, and you get uh, 20% off of one of the best programs out there. Uh, with that, Spencer, do you have anything else or do you just want to kind of awkwardly uh, blow up this Death Star? Help me, EMS 2020. You're my only hope. <laughs> if we're your I find only your hope. Fact, I find your lack of faith in EMS 2020 disturbing. <laughs> EMS 2020 is the ship that made the Kessel Run in less than 12 oh, parsecs. Jesus it's Christ. It's outrun the Imperial Starships, not the local uh, bulk cruisers, mind you. I'm talking nope. about big Karelian ships. And now we She's fade fast out. enough for you. Fading. Fading. Never tell me the odds, Fading. EMS 2020. Fading. 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 Perfect ending, man. <laughs> <laughs>